Good morning to one and all. Excited you're here with us. Uh, The fun thing is, Debbie just read from the end of John. And John is writing, and he gives this summative statement. This is the whole reason that I wrote this book. The whole reason is that so you, the reader, would know Jesus, that would know that he is the reason we have life, that we have being, that it is all for him, that he is our savior. Come and believe in him. This is why John wrote the book. Our existence as a church is not much different. It's not much different. We exist so that we can help people. We can invite those busy people to experience the peace of life with Jesus Christ. But we know that though there are more seats available, please tell your friends, uh, to fill on a Sunday morning, not everybody can call near town church their home. It's impossible. Not everybody can. But we can support others who are planting churches around Houston and support them as they are trying to reach those with whom they are in their backyard. Now, I know that Russell uh, has talked about our church planters that we support. And we have three. Taylor Entz is at Sojourn Galleria. Uh, Sergio Garcia is at Caroso Grace. And then we have Roswell Smith at the church at the University of Houston. We have three church planters, three churches uh, throughout the city that we support. And I want to remind you that we are supporting them, not just financially, but that we as a church are praying for them, that we are praying for their congregations. We are praying for the ministry that God is doing through them so that in those communities, Christ is known and his name is glorified. So would you bow with me right now at the start of our service? We're going to pray for them. Lord, I thank you so much for Taylor, for Sergio, and for Roswell. I thank you, Lord, for what you are doing in them how you are changing their characters, how you are molding them to look more and more like you as they lead those that you've called to your name. In each of these places, Lord, I ask that your name go forth, that people hear about you, that they see the witness of these men and the people who are part of that community, and that they know there is something different. They know there is something good. Christ, move in them as they preach today as their congregations hear the word, as they are exposed to who you are and what you've done. Make your name great. Make these communities grow with faithful disciples. And Lord, open our eyes to what you've got for us today. In your name we pray, amen. So I'm probably going to check back in with Sergio and Taylor and Roswell and come back and say, okay, this is what's going on in their lives, and these are the things that they have asked that we pray for them about, because I do not want Neartown's involvement in church planting in this community, one to be only financial, and one to be only me, (laughs) or only Russell. I want us to be about this and excited what God is doing in this community. So my name is Andrew Johnson. Uh, I am excited everybody is here, and today we start this new series, Covenant Questions covenant questions. Uh, I ask, I'm going to be bold, if you can try to be here the next four weeks, because this four-week series, imagine a four-volume book series. Each book is good, it is going to be complete, and you'll be excited that you read it, 
but they're going to make sense more when viewed as a whole. So uh, I know me even asking, can you be here the next four weeks, is already an impossibility due to work and vacations and travels. So if you know you can't be here, check us out, podcast.neartownchurch.org. Go check that out. Listen to the sermons that you missed or whatever you listen to podcasts on. Just subscribe to us and listen as those are posted because it's going to make much better sense if you view this Covenant Question series as a whole. Now, Covenant Questions. Uh, These are the four critical questions that I feel that we as humans have been asking for a long time. Who is God? What has he done? Who am I? And what am I supposed to do? Who is God? What has he done? Who am I? What's my response? What am I supposed to do? These four questions, uh, it's not just that Christians are asking them. Uh, We as humanity have been asking for a while. And so these next four weeks we're actually going to cover. Each week is going to be looking at those questions even more. Now the other week I was sitting at the kitchen table with my sister-in-law on vacation. And she was asking, so how excited are you? Uh, slash, how nervous are you to be preaching every week all summer long? And I said, she said, are you you nervous? I said, no. And I nodded my head yes, because this is certainly a great joy, uh, but there's a lot of excitement with it. So there was a tinge of nervousness, but I told her in all seriousness, Abby, I'm not nervous in that I know that God has brought specific things to my mind and in my heart And he's given me an opportunity to share them with this community. And so then, at the kitchen table, I launched into this idea with her of these covenant questions and their history in scripture. And I, I, she was very attentive, but she got the big eyed look and I realized I just got really excited really fast. So I had to apologize and slow back down. But uh, I went into, okay, this is what we are going to be talking about at Neartown this summer. God knows our questions. He knows our needs. He knows where we are. And so he knows that we are asking who he is and what he's done, who we are, and what we're supposed to do in this world. And so he came out from the outset and he began answering those questions with his people that we can find in the Bible in these things called covenants. Now, covenants are agreements of loyalty. Um, I talk about covenants a lot when I do weddings. Uh, You talk about entering a covenant of marriage. Uh, Covenants are not contracts. It is not I'll sign my name and you sign your name and things are going to be good unless, oh, you you, mm, you shouldn't have done that. I'm walking away. Uh, uh, Covenants are about loyalty. and It's an agreement of loyalty. In these covenants, there were five of them in the Old Testament that God made with his people. And he started with Adam, Adam and Eve at creation. He made one with Noah right after the flood. He made one with Abraham as he sent him out to be his own people in a new land. He made one with Moses uh, up on Mount Sinai with all the people of Israel. That is the law. And then he made one with David. Now these now have these, you only add a few letters, but it makes it sound way smarter. The Adamic covenant, the Noahic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic 
covenant and the Davidic covenant. These five covenants God made with his people. Now these are not just, okay, these exist in, uh, in the Bible, so they're in here, and because they're in here, we should talk about them. Well, it's a little bit more than that. God made these with his people because he said, I want you to know who I am. And so he makes these covenants, and he, he initiates. And he goes out, and he says, this is who I am, and this is what I've done. And this is who you are. And this is what you should do. He actually answers these questions as he goes through these covenants. Now, the funny thing is, is everybody ready to go full nerd? Strap on. Here we go. So, the covenants that God made with his people back in that time period are actually specific to people that lived in the ancient Near East. There is a big, thick book called the Ancient Near East Texts. Anet is what all the brainy people call it. And Anet has these treaties between nations uh, called suzerain vassal treaties. These suzerain vassal treaties were made between two nation states. And so they all followed this very specific pattern. They all followed it. Some of them had more or less of something, but they all followed these patterns. So there are seven steps. At the beginning of all of these suzerain vassal treaties, you had the preamble. In the preamble, it was nation one stating, okay, who is the person making the treaty? Why are they making the treaty? And uh, if they sent a representative, why this was happening. Then it moved on to the historical prologue. In the historical prologue, it was Nation A saying, we are awesome. This is what we have done in your honor or in your favor. And because we have come to save your hides many times, you need us. So let us make a treaty. And then it would move on to the general stipulations. In the general stipulations, this is... Nation A, saying to Nation B, uh, since we are in your corner and we are coming to you, we ask that you are on our side. Don't go running off making treaties with our enemies. Uh, Support us in our endeavors and be on our side. Those are the general stipulations. Then it moved to the specific stipulations. So beyond just be on our side, it also meant you need to pay taxes. You need to join us in battle when we go and fight. Uh, You need to honor the commands and the laws that we put in place. These are the specific stipulations about war, about farming, the whole lot. And then it would move towards the blessings and curses. If you follow this, these wonderful things will happen to you. We will fight with you. We will defend you. If you are low on food, if you are low on funds, we will come we will come alongside you and we will provide what is lacking. If you reject us and this covenant, all of those protections that we said that we would have with you, they are gone. And if you are attacked, we will let you be attacked. And if you reject us and are attacked, we might be the ones attacking. So these are kind of the, nat- the, the nature of these suzerain vassal treaties. It would move to the document clause. How important is it? Where should it be kept? How often should it be read? Where should it be stored so that the nation would know, oh, that's right, we have a treaty with them. We're on their side. And then it would finish off 
It says witnesses. It's really funny when you read these ancient Near East texts. It talks about, okay, nation one is being represented by this person and this person, and, and nation two is being represented by these people, and they are all witnesses to this covenant. But also remember the great God of the clouds who is over here, and the trees that are over here, and the ground is witness to you that you have made a treaty this day. And if you break the treaty, we will call upon the God of the clouds and of the trees and of the dirt and all of these many places. They have seen that you have made this covenant today, so stick with your treaty. Now, I went down that very nerdy route to tell you when in the Bible we see these covenants. It actually locks down to a time period when these covenants were written. So when you look back at the Bible and you you hear people say, well, that wasn't written by Moses. It was written by a collection of people who all had, uh, you know, hindsight being 2020. They edited it and edited it and edited it many, many, many years later. By the fact that we have these covenants, it nails down the time period that we see them in. That we know that Moses wrote the Pentateuch and he wrote, that God wrote the law in about the 14 to 1500 BC because of what existed only during that time period in the ancient Near East. That's when it was developed. So even so, if you pull out that uh, chart again, on the right-hand side, this is the ancient structure that they all followed. If you actually open the book of Deuteronomy, it follows this almost to a T. As you are reading through it and you get to this verse, it's like, okay, it almost feels like they're saying, and now the specific stipulations... And it steps into it. So it is very, very rooted in history. So this is your encouragement from your pastor. The Bible is historical. It is rooted in history and it is trustworthy. Even when you are willing to go down these very nerdy routes, you are rewarded. Okay? So God then comes to his people in these five covenants. So now we're back to the specific covenants of the Bible. God is in the place of, if you will, nation one. He is the initiator of the covenant. And he is coming to his people and he says, this is who I am. In the preamble and in that historical prologue, when the nation one tells the people, this is who I am, God does the same thing. He opens every covenant by answering that question, who is God? And then he proceeds on to tell them, this is what I have done for you. Like the historical prologue. He comes to the people and says, this is what I have done for you. This is what I have done in your interest. And then out of that, God tells them, because this is what I have done, I can tell you, you are mine. And he begins to let them know who they are. But they know who they are based on who God is, based on what he has done. And then, based on who they are, he says, now this is what I want you to do. You know what to do based on who God is, what he has done, and who you are. Now we're going to unpack all of that a little bit later. But today we're going to be talking about why God reached out to this people through his covenants. Because he said, I want you to know who I am. I want you to know who I am. And so I am going to tell you who I am. And so when we look back at these covenants, they each go through and reveal a little bit more about God. So 
I am going to race through in about five minutes what entire semesters of classes and seminaries are about in covenant. So bear with me. We have five covenants. The very first one is the Adamic covenant. This is Genesis chapter 1. This one is argued, is this really a covenant? Um, because it doesn't follow all of the other things, but it's generally guarded, regarded as you know, the first one, and it follows this pattern. In it, God says to Adam and Eve, okay, this is who I am, and this is what I've done. So God, the creator, the giver of life, he has given them everything they need to survive. So if he's given them everything, he is sustaining them. He is the sustainer. He has commanded that they be fruitful and multiply. He has given them the ability to create, to be like God. He is the creator. He gave them the ability to create. And then he says, I give you authority over all that I have made. Well, if you have authority, you can give authority. If you don't have authority, you can't give authority to anybody. And so God, when giving authority, is a reminder, I am in charge, I am the authority, but I am delegating, and I am giving you authority to rule in this area just like me. Right at the outset, God came to the people that he has made. He didn't just leave it for them to guess about this distant being. He came to them and he said, I am the creator. I am the sustainer. I am the authority I am in charge of all things, and I love you. Okay, so we go then to the Noahic covenant. This is right after Noah has gotten off of the ark. He has taken his family. The floods have subsided, and they step out. The beginning of Genesis chapter 9. At the start of the chapter, he commands that they be fruitful and multiply. Does that sound familiar? He tells them the exact same thing because now they actually have to repopulate the world. It's just them. It says, be fruitful and multiply, but he doesn't stop there. He says, I will not flood the earth again and wipe out humanity. He makes a promise to them to protect them, to care for them. So right off the boat, he is saying, I am in your corner. I love you. I will care for you. This isn't happening again. And he gives them the sign of his promise, the rainbow. To say, because you see the rainbow, you know I'm going to care for you. And I'm never going to do this again. Then the Abrahamic covenant. So he comes to Abraham. It's this nomad, this wandering man. And he says, okay, you're wandering with your people. Now I want you to wander in a different place. And now that you're wandering in this different place, I am going to bless you so that you can be a blessing to others. And then in Genesis chapter 15, he shows them this land. And he said, this is going to be your people's land. It's not coming right now. They're going to go to a faraway country. I will take them back. I will care for them. But no, as he says at the beginning of Genesis chapter 15, verse 1, fear not. I am your shield. Fear not. I am your shield. He comes to Abraham and says, This is who I am. Take comfort in this. I am your shield. I am your protector. I will fight for you. I will go forward in battle. This is who I am. This is why you can trust me. I am your shield. In the Mosaic Covenant, so God calls his son, Israel, this this vast and sprawling people who have been in Egypt, and he calls them out of Egypt, and he says, I want you to come and be my people. I am your father. Come and worship me. 
Come and worship me. And so he takes them out of Egypt through all of the plagues. That, I mean, we've all seen Charlton Heston do his thing in the movies. So through Moses, God calls his people out of Egypt. He frees them. The last plague was so severe that the Egyptians wanted nothing to do with the Israelites. They wanted them gone. And so they basically started throwing money at them. Just take whatever you can. Get out of here. We do not want you here anymore. And so in a way, it's as if Israel went to battle and they looted the enemy, but there was no battle, but there was a lot of loot. And they said, just take it, take it, get out, which is exactly what God promised Abraham those many years earlier would happen. And so he calls them out of Egypt back to his promised land with all of this loot in hand. And as they have made their way through the Red Sea, God calls Moses up on top of Mount Sinai and he gives him the law. And he gives him the law and he says, this is who I am. They are my people. I am their God. And in the very beginning of Exodus chapter 20, verse 1, he says clearly, I am the Lord, your God, who has taken you out of Egypt. I am the Lord, your God. I am your God. I am in charge. I am your benefactor. I am your protector. Again, he reasserts that he is the authority with the capital A. And if you can throw up that chart again, the fun thing is the book of Deuteronomy is the entirety of the law. It's the entirety of the covenant. It is the book. There's like two chapters or one and a half chapters after this. It is the book of Deuteronomy that flows from this. And it says, this is my covenant with you. It, Deuteronomy, the second giving of the law is what the name means. So he comes again and he says, this is my law. This is my law. This is who I am. Okay, now fast forward 450 years-ish, and we get to David. And God comes to David. Now David wants to build God this really beautiful house because David's looking at his beautiful house, and he starts to feel bad. Oh, I have a big house. God doesn't have a big house. Maybe I should build God a really big house. And so he makes plans. I'm going to build God a house. And God sends word through Nathan the prophet who comes to David. And he says, first of all, I'm not like you. I don't need a house. Which actually should be reassuring. God's not like us. Already in that we learn who he is. He's not like us. He doesn't have our creature needs like we do. But then in this, he begins to talk to David. And all of these things, these inferences of who God is, come out. Let me read some of this. God reminds David that he is moved David from obscurity to fame. He promises to plant Israel in safety and rest for a period. God is peace and he gives peace. He knows what it is to want rest and he is the grantor of it. And lastly, he promises to David, I'm going to establish your throne. So it's not going to just be you and then it's going to taper off. It's not just going to be you and your son, and it's going to taper off. Your kingdom will last forever, and I will establish it. I will keep it. God reaching out through Nathan to David, he is basically screaming at David, I am faithful. I am faithful, and I will carry your kingdom on. Now, if 
if we look through, okay, all five of these covenants, and we were to pull out as we looked in them and said, okay, this is what God said he was. This is what God said he was. This is what God says he was. I compiled a bit of a list. This is the list. God is the creator, the sustainer, the authority over all. God is gracious. He is a carer. He is the protector, the provider, the shield, the defender, the instigator who goes out before us in battles. The promise keeper, God, is faithful. He is the Lord. He is the ruler. He is the powerful one, the giver of status. He is a servant. He is peace. He is the giver of rest and the maker of kingdoms. What a list. God came to his people and he said, this is who I am. And again, this is the fun part. He is the one who initiates these covenants. He came to them as people are asking, who is God? God says, this is who I am. This is who I am to you. And here's the fun part. He comes very clearly and says, this is who I am. He doesn't demand attention. He doesn't come through and just say, look, I'm the one in charge. Do what I say. And then just waits for everybody to do it. No. See, God comes down. God comes down in humility and bends on the level of humanity and says, This is who I am. Again, in coming in, giving a covenant that was common in the area, people would understand this. This isn't a different language. This is what they get. And he comes to them and he says, this is who I am. I want you to know me. I want you to hear me. What does that remind you of? What does that remind you of, of somebody who comes down on the level to be understood? A parent a father. God is our father. It's no wonder then that the Bible refers to God as father numerous times. In the Old Testament, there are 15 very specific places. With a few other that it's kind of inferred, there are 15 very specific places where God comes and says, I am your father. When we get to the New Testament, it's a lot more than 15 Uh, Between Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the first four books of the New Testament, they're referred to as the Gospels. In the Gospels, God is referred to as Father 165 times. Just in those four books. That's not even to account for the rest of the New Testament. So God is very clearly portrayed as Father, the one who cares, the one who comes on the level of humanity, us. And he says, this is who I am. Now, I'm not bringing these things out about God being Father because next week's Father's Day, and I want everybody to look really good and remember the next week's Father's Day, so do something. But uh, that's not just because it's next week. It's because it's here in the text. This is who God is, and this is how he comes to us. Now, a few years ago, when I was at Phoenix Seminary, um, I went through a class with a guy named Dr. Wakefield. Uh, Dr. Wakefield is what we called him in class, uh, but behind his back we called him Huggy Bear because he was the sweetest, 
kindest, most gentle man that I had had as a professor. And his heart, he just wore it on his sleeve. He was just gentle. And so he led this class called Practicing the Presence of God. In this class, now remember this is a seminary level class, so I'm not saying everybody should do this today. Throughout the whole semester, we had an assignment through the Psalms. So we were to read through the Psalms, 150 chapters, and we were to read through. And any time that we noted, as we read, that it described God, it talked about his character, it talked about who he was, we were to mark it with an F. That's right, it is not illegal to write in your Bible. So we wrote in it, and so you can look at my Bible, and it is covered with the letter F, which stood for Father, all throughout the Psalms. So you read through the Psalms and marked everything that had something to do with God's character with an F, because this is God describing himself. This is what a father is. And so we would go through, and so when you, you say, okay, God is my rock, David would write, God is my rock, God is my fortress, God is my protector. We can say, okay, oh, these are, these are things that God is actually telling us about himself. And then we would go back through and read all 150 again. And this time we would compile all the things that we recognized about God into buckets, if you will. So again, God is my rock. God is my defender. God is my protector. God is my fortress. Those are all very similar. So we would take those and kind of put them in a bucket and kind of like, this is my, God is my defender bucket. So you'd find all the verses that kind of look like that and made this big thing. So you got to the end of this and we were to write a paper and it said, write this paper now that you've compiled and put the things in the buckets and you've read through the Psalms twice. I want you to describe which characteristics you totally relate to. The things that you get implicitly. But I also, this is what Dr. Wakefield wanted us to do, I want you to write about the things that you learned about God from the Psalms that were completely foreign to you. That you would read and say, I I don't know if I know that God. And so I get down to write this paper, you know, me, the guy who's going to school to be a professional Christian. That's a joke. Um, But... I'm going to seminary and I'm writing this paper on the Psalms and I get to the part of how do I know God? It comes off so easy. Oh, God is holy. He is in charge. He is the one, the powerful, the almighty. I had stories and things to back that up throughout the Bible. So it was real easy for me to do that. But when I got to the part where it said, so how do you not know God in the way that he has been revealed in the Psalms? I realized, as I read through, I really didn't know God very much. As he was telling David, he is intimate. That God is near. God was a caring and tender father. And I realized when doing this paper, I didn't know God like this. I knew him intellectually, I knew that God was supposed to be near. But I realized that day at seminary, I don't think I know God like this. I want to, but it seems foreign to me. I had to kind of work through that. God, why don't I know you like this? At the end of the assignment, we had to go through the Psalms one more time. And then we had to say, we write a final paper. 
And so I had to write this and say, introduce God as your father to somebody. And so I was like, this is, this is my father. He is kind. He is so kind. And then we were to use one of the verses in the Psalms that talked about God being kind. And then we were to actually talk about a moment in our lives that we could say, I know God is kind because he did this. But I realized that day that God is so vast and so incredible, and yet he wants to be known. He is near. And if you're sitting there, as I was in front of my computer that day, and you say, man, I don't know him like that. God being my father? Well, my father was awful. I don't want God to be my father. I like God. I don't like my father. But God as father, he comes through and he says, first of all, it's okay. It's okay that you don't know him like that yet. It's okay that you aren't immediately filled with warm fuzzies when you think about God. He comes to us on our level through the covenants down on a knee. He says, this is who I am. And he kind of sits with his arms open. And he says, come here. I love you. This is who I am. And if it's like Millie running up to give me a hug, I can stand like this. If it's August, I really need to brace myself for a good hug. But God's ready for us. Wherever we are, whatever we've got going on, he is right there on our level and he wants us to know that he is near, he is intimate, he is holy, he is strong. He can take whatever we can throw at him. He is there for us on our side. And he has shown it through Jesus. Next week, we're going to be talking a lot more about what God has done. But what I can tell you today is that our Father God has shown us love through Christ. And he sent him to show us love. And we can look back at these covenants and we can see them and say, wow, God really did reach out to us, to a people, to show us what love is. And through Christ and the new covenant talk about it again. He's coming to us to show us love. But see, we get to actually play outside observer when we read about Thomas. So when we look back at the end of John, do you feel like you're a bit like Thomas at times? Do you feel like Thomas who says, I've heard about Jesus? Now, he was one of his disciples, so he saw everything. And yet he still said, I am not believing it until I see him with my own eyes. And Jesus shows up and says, Thomas, put her there. Actually, really, put her there. Put it there. Because I am real, and I am here, and I have died, and I have beaten death. It's me. And Thomas says, my Lord and my God, He believes in that moment. Jesus says, blessed are those who come after you who believe in me, who have never actually seen me. That's us. That's those of us who have come to faith in Christ, who have actually said, we need you, Jesus. Here's the fun thing. Thomas didn't just say, he didn't pay lip service and say, my Lord and my God. 
and then walk out that door. He committed his life to following Christ. After Christ ascended, he was a missionary. He was the first missionary to go to India, history tells us. And in fact, he was martyred for his faith in India in the early 70s. Thomas didn't just stay with his namesake, Doubting Thomas. He was faithful, and he heard the cry of his Savior, who got down on his level like a loving father and said, here are my hands, here is my side. If this is how you need me to talk to you, this is who I am. And God comes to you, where you are today, to me, and says, I love you. I love you. I want you to know me. Who is God? God is good. God is caring. God is peace. He is our Father, and He loves us very much. Would you bow your heads with me? Lord, just as I'm closing my Bible and I'm seeing the Psalms, you are so big. You are so incredible. You have moved in so many ways and you have reached down to us to tell us who you are. But just because you're speaking, Lord, doesn't mean we're hearing you clearly. Just because you're telling us these things doesn't mean we believe but you have come to us through your word, through these covenants, through Jesus Christ, to say, I love you and I want you to believe. I want you to have faith. Christ, move in our hearts. Let us see you. In your name we pray, amen. It's something beautiful in Scripture. Uh, In the New Testament and in Greek, uh, the word for belief is pistis. The word for faith is pistis. And the word for trust is pistis. Based on context, you translate it differently. And so when, when Jesus comes to Thomas... And John says, I've written these things that you may believe. I think we hear belief, head knowledge. I believe, I believe. But he almost comes to Thomas and he says, yeah, but do you have faith in me? Do you have faith in me? Or if we look at it a little differently, Thomas, do you trust me? Our Father comes today to us and says, Do you trust me? Do you trust me? Think through that as we're singing the next song.